Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture, and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. Today on Food Talk, Danny interviews Fabrice de Klerk, the science director at EAT, about how eating within the planet's limits can help save the global food system. Later, she interviews Amy Wu, the founder of From Farms to Incubators, a multimedia project that aims to document and share stories of women solving farming's biggest challenges. She and Danny discuss stories of women who are driving some of the biggest innovations in agriculture and technology. Enjoy the show. Today, I get to chat with Dr. Fabrice de Klerk, the science director at EAT, an international nonprofit focused on using science to disrupt and transform the food system. He is the co-author of the 2019 Eat Lancet Report, which outlined dietary plans and food system transformation that are optimal for both a growing human population and a very vulnerable planet. He was also a senior scientist at Bioversity, which is now known as the Alliance of Bioversity International and SEAT, the International Center for Tropical Research. Uh, Fabrice is joining me from Montpellier, France. Uh, I Just before we start, Fabrice, how are you and your family? You know you're one of my favorite people in the world, so I just want to make sure everyone's okay. We're doing well, Danny. Actually, we're, we're incredibly fortunate, and I think the hardest part about being here is not being able to get out and, and be more physically active in this crisis, but we're doing well. Thanks for asking. How, how's your family? We're all good. Knock on wood. Everyone's been okay. Um, Bernie, uh, my co-founder's wife, is a frontline nurse in New York, uh, so we're all sending her good thoughts. I mention her a lot on this podcast so people know and they can think good thoughts for all the frontline workers out there. Um, so before we start, Fabrice, you know, you, you have both this incredible science background and I think a really incredible advocacy background as well. And there are policymakers and others uh, out there right now who are sort of disputing the science around COVID-19 and, and um, you know, spreading things that may or may not be true. And it's, it's sort of a, a weird time. And it reminds me of sort of the the dispute around climate change science. And I'm worried that as the virus spreads to the global South and places where there isn't, you know, always good nutrition or good healthcare infrastructure, that this lack of belief in science will cause a lot of suffering and cause the virus to spread maybe to places it shouldn't have or wouldn't have if people had, you know, followed some of the, the rules set out by uh, the CDC and and the World Health Organization. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think what you, what you're saying really does cause quite a bit of concern. Of uh, there's there was a moment of mass confusion around uh, the, the virus, but I think that those of us who live in the West, Europe, and even more in the U.S., we've actually had an incredible advantage in terms of being able to see the spread of virus from east to west and for us there's really no excuse for for action and i think it's, it's really a moment when heeding the science 
doing social distancing or physical distancing, wearing our masks, uh, behaving as we can to really try to get out as quickly as possible is really of paramount importance. And I think that can't be underemphasized. Uh, David Navarro was with 200 of us uh, yesterday online just really emphasizing that this is not going to go away soon and that the best action that we can take is by, by following the rules, by isolating, by supporting frontline workers, uh, by not panicking. Uh, and by really, I think, recognizing that in this case, self-isolation is the, the best action that we can take. Right. And if there's anyone I'm going to listen to, it's going to be David Navarro, who's such a uh, an expert on all things food and agriculture, but also, you know, the spread of infectious diseases. So he's just an incredible um, person who works closely with EAT. So you're, you're all very lucky to have him on your side. Um, before we st start talking more about COVID-19, I was wondering if you could describe to our viewers and listeners the work that you do at the EAT Forum and why it's so important, the work you do at EAT uh, as an organization. Sure, sure. So EAT, EAT is a, it was a rather young organization. I think we're starting to become middle-aged, middle but uh, really what EAT has tried to do is just to flag I think the real struggles that our food system currently is having both on the health side as well on the environment side. Uh, and I think the way that we like to describe it is recognizing that uh, food, how we produce it, where we produce it, what foods we produce, uh, are both the biggest driver of poor health and the biggest driver of environmental degradation. Uh, they're also likely to be the biggest victim of environmental degradation. Uh, and, uh, but what, you know, you and I finally believe in is that food systems are, are our best bet and the biggest solution that we have in terms of addressing these, these issues. Uh, so, so EAT really just creates a space where, where science, uh, private sector, public sector, civil society uh, can meet, convene, work, break down silos around uh, human health, environmental health, and social equity, uh, and really begin to speak to how we can transition and really radically transform food systems that are more fit for purpose for those, those three goals. You, you introed by saying, you know, food likes to be a food, sorry, to eat likes to be a disruption in food systems. Uh, I think we've, we've now met our match with, with COVID. And one of the big questions that many of us in food are asking is whether COVID, as devastating as it is, um, is not the reset button uh, that will allow us to really think critically about what is the food system that we want emerging out of this. So it's not to belittle uh, COVID at all. I mean, it's, its impact is tremendous, but uh, we are hoping that it's raising some key, I think, highlights showing where food systems have been fragile. Uh, and also, I think, re-emphasizing that when we speak of frontline workers, health professionals absolutely uh, are critical in ensuring our health. But all the agricultural workers, including migrant workers, grocery store workers, farmers, are, are also the frontline workers. And it's a big part of the question that we're asking ourselves now is we're in a, we're in a rather devastating health crisis. How do we mobilize those forces to ensure that we don't transition now into a food crisis? Absolutely. You, you mentioned this idea that EAT tries to create space and break down silos. And I know your annual forum has already been canceled this year, like so many other amazing events around food and agriculture. How do we continue to do that silo breaking and have these important discussions when we are physical distancing? Um, how can we still be social? How can we still have these important discussions? Yeah, that's a well. You're you're the best example of that, and the way you've pivoted so quickly has been really been tremendous. And so I think again, another frontline worker is is media and information that's been so helpful in making sure that we can have conversations even from our, our own homes. 
at EAT, uh, we've, we will go on with the program. We're pivoting to an online program. It's called EAT at Home. Uh, we're going to change from a you know, specific June three-day event to a summer-long event. Uh, and I think the real opportunity that we're seeing is that uh, we're no longer going to be limited to the 700 people who travel to the forum. We're going to be able to be much more diverse, much more democratic, and we're going to be able to, I think, elevate some of the critical voices from the Global South, uh, from food service, from agriculture, from the farming community, uh, from economics. Uh, and I think uh, what we're going to want to do is, is yes, of course, pay some attention to, to COVID, uh, but I think that what uh, EAT and many of our allies uh, are trying to shine some spotlight on is uh, let's begin now to put in place the food system of the future, the food system we want to have return post-COVID. Well, I like the term that you used, reset button. And, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity here, despite all the pain and suffering and economic disruption and social disruption that this has created. And, you know, we've been talking about that for more than four weeks now on this live cast with different experts. Like, what does that reset button look like to you? Fabrice, I mean, you mentioned the the frontline workers outside of healthcare, our grocery store workers, our truck drivers, our people, you know, farmers. Certainly, what what does the reset button look like, sort of, you know, from from your perspective about those those folks? How how can we include them more when we're having these discussions? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally that uh, what we're seeing is just how how essential these individuals are. Um, I think that uh, we often talk about quantity of jobs uh, that are, are created. We're finding that too many people in food uh, are working much too long or too little recognition, whether it's economic recognition or even just a place in society uh, recognition, uh, and that uh, this reset should be about I think recognizing how fundamental they are, making sure that the food that we purchase isn't about producing as much as we can for as little as we can, but really about elevating quality of jobs. So I think quality of jobs for me is a, a fundamental issue that needs much, much more attention. I think some of the observations that I'm seeing here in France, uh, you know, for example, uh, the, the CSA that we receive our produce from, uh, is running itself ragged right now, delivering food to elderly in the neighborhood. Uh, they've quadrupled, I think, the sales because demands that people are re-recognizing that local food has has value. Uh, and I think you know what we're wanting to make sure is that post-COVID that that doesn't get forgotten. Uh, we're also quite concerned that in the rush or in this emergency situation that we're in, you know, the rush to find solutions, that we create some some new lock-ins, some deep lock-ins that are going to further disadvantage small independent farmers in favor of greater consolidation of supply chains. And so I think it's, it's a moment to, yes, act uh, boldly, uh, act quickly to make sure that people have access to quality and healthy food. But I think we need to think quite critically about whether the solution that we're putting in place now are the ones that we want to persist post-COVID or whether they're ones that are going to create, uh, I think, uh, new lock-ins and new issues of post-COVID. Yeah, it's a time to be very sort of bold, but also careful. Uh, and that's kind of what I appreciate about you and, and what EAT does, because we can have these big ideas, but we can also think about them strategically and in a way that makes sense. You know, you... you uh, Eat had so much press and so much attention placed on the Eat Lancet report and, and, and this idea of a diet for planetary health. And I think we're, we're, you know, really understanding how important a good diet 
is, you know, now it, it builds immune systems, it protects people, it, it can build local economies and regional economies. Can you talk about why changing our diets, you know, in a, in a, during COVID, during a pandemic and also post pandemic, why that's important? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great question, and we're we're fortunately seeing uh, that uh, a healthy diet is even more important now uh, than we had articulated in the past. Uh, unfortunately, the the greatest uh, mortality, the greatest convalescences related to COVID are. Uh, for individuals who are either overweight or obese. I and mean, we're seeing that 70% of the patients in France are, are in that category. And I've seen you know, recent reports coming out of, of the US as, as well. And, and again, these, these same individuals are individuals who are often marginalized poor, or from poor communities uh, who are struggling with incomes. And so it's, it's not about uh, a fat shaming, but really recognizing that having access to healthy food or preparing healthy food, a culture of healthy eating is really one that we're losing and that the consequences of losing that are, are increasing the mortality rate around COVID much with rates that are much higher than had we been able to really keep uh, these dietary diseases at, at check. So, so now much more than ever, I think we're, we're getting seen that that's reinforced. I think it's going to be slow to turn that around immediately, but I think it does call attention to how the access to a healthy diet, access to healthy eating habits are part of a resilient strategy for a country and for, for a community. And so, so I hope we'll be able to, to reinforce that and provide support mechanisms to ensure that all neighborhoods and all peoples have access to, to quality food, tasty food, healthy food, uh, and uh, to uh, the means of both preparing that, uh, consuming it, and sharing it with family. Well, I mean, you've brought up this really important point about communities having access to healthy food, but I know one thing in particular that concerns you right now is you know the 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 supply of fruits and vegetables and other really nutritious foods that are you know uh, important for our immune systems and important for preventing diet related diseases that they're sort of in jeopardy right now because of covid the supply is not as you know in some places you know it, it, there hasn't been disruption but in other places there will be and and so how should we be handling that yeah, I think there's there's a, some double jeopardies there. I mean, I know that you know, Kenya, for example, is a massive producer of green beans for Europe. All of that importing has uh, has halted. So there's a livelihoods question there for uh, the Kenyan community. But there's also an access to healthy food the question for, for the French community. Uh, those supply chains that have remained open, particularly for fresh produce, seem to be the ones that are coming from uh, from locals, local farmers markets. And so I, th I think that I'm also seeing several national governments rethinking the dependency on long supply chains. Uh, I think that there's a, a new evaluation of what short supply chains can do in terms of increasing resilience. And I'm seeing several countries really beginning to look at uh, how much of that fresh produce should be produced within national borders. Should we be elevating uh, enviable uh, labor within national markets, uh, what's the dependency on, on migrant labor, or else uh, how do you increase, again, the value of the recognition that you give to migrant labor? So I think a whole set of social justice issues that are emerging. W one of the concerns that, that I have is that moving into crisis mode, 
uh, and with countries concerned about food security that they will put much more tension onto staples uh, and so that the the next 12 to 24 months there will be countries making sure that there's a sufficient soy wheat maize potatoes all those non-perishable staples that can make sure that people at least have access to, to calories uh, i hope that so while we think about maintaining that security, uh, that we don't lose track of the importance again of, of a healthy diet and that we don't miss this opportunity to think about how we build resilience into uh, the fresh produce chain, whether that's through freezing, whether it's through uh, small local markets, whether it's through processing, right? We've talked a lot about processing as being uh, about unhealthy food. I think there's a space now to rethink about food processing, particularly of healthy foods and maintaining the healthy attributes of processed foods as an important, again, strategy increasing resilience and access to, to healthy diets. Yeah, you're echoing a lot of what Chef Dan Barber and I talked about last week about, you know, processing is often maligned, but like now, you know, during this time, we can see how beneficial it is, especially when you're preserving and uh, freezing or, or, you know, uh, doing whatever to um, make sure that healthy foods are, are available throughout the year. I, I also, he also brought up something that I, I'm really still very concerned about and will continue to be is that big food is making a lot of money right now. You know, it's the gr big grocery chains all over the world who are sort of benefiting in a lot of ways off of this crisis because people are panic buying, they're hoarding. And it's, you know, while there's all this renewed interest in cooking at home or from what, from what I hear, I think a lot of people are still sort of eating, you know, um, be, be some comfort foods and I'm not maligning them at all, but like people are eating frozen pizzas and, and, you know, processed chips and, the, and those kinds of things. And so, you know, I, I I don't know how to think about those two things in my mind, like the, you know, this idea that we're all eating healthier than we were before, but also the big foods making a lot of money right now. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question. And I've, um, uh, I've seen bits of everything. So you know, right now I have little snapshots. I mean, the, the grocery stores here in France have been struggling to keep shelves stocked with the, with flour, eggs, milk, and, and lardons. So quiche Lorraine over here is the big uh, uh, comfort food. Um, the snack section was completely full, but I, I've only gone out to the grocery store once or twice in the past, uh, in the past months. So, so I, I think that we're seeing, we're seeing hits and misses. Uh, I did have a conversation with, with Danone, and um, I know that they've also mobilized quite a few of their resources to help make sure you know that dairy products remain available, and that some food companies are shifting uh, what they're producing to make sure that they're producing just the essential foods. Um, and and I, they've also been articulating that for the first time, they've seen companies speaking uh, in a forgetting about pre-competitive rules. So, so I think there are some important efforts by, by business to help make sure that there are foods available. Um, but I'm not seeing that same, uh, that same value in terms, again, the fresh, fresh produce. And, and we're seeing some really important questions, particularly around uh, meat production and slaughterhouses, uh, where, uh, again, quality of labor, the risk to employers, uh, and the vulnerability of that supply chain because of extreme concentration uh, is asking some big questions. Uh, the other the other business that um, uh, that in France we're quite worried about is the uh, e-commerce and delivery. Uh, there's some very real concerns that there's a massive consolidation of the uh, e-commerce uh, and that it's locking out quite a few people. Um, 
in France, we very much value the, 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 the third space. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you know, the home is space number one, which we're seeing a lot of right now. Well, work is space number two, and space number three is that social space when we go out to a farmer's market, to a grocery store, and the interactions that we have with people. And it's really important of those interactions. In France, it's the Saturday markets, which have been closed now because of COVID, but really provide an important social space as well as economic space. And I think here, the notion that you might lose that permanently because if people have transitioned to an e-commerce model is one that we're, we're quite concerned about. And so, so I think we're, we're seeing a lot of thinking about more diffuse supply chains that support more independent businesses, greater value returning to those business people, and also a greater social inclusion of those individuals in community as key topics in France. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the third space because we're seeing so many farmers markets and CSAs and other, you know, uh, farmers really having to change their, their delivery models, whether it's, you know, um, drive up farmers, drive through farmers markets, or, you know, my CSA is now delivering right to my door. I've talked about this a lot on this live cast because I'm so impressed with them. You know, they're delivering right to my door. Everything is safe. They're wearing gloves and a mask. I guess still get to interact with them. You know, so it's it's kind of you know I'm getting I'm getting that social <laughs> interaction I need from from being um, around people, but it, it's it's certainly changed quite a bit. You know, the, We're the craving it, aren't we? Right? Yeah, I'm, I can talk to anybody right now. <laughs> the male the male delivers. She and I always have a nice conversation because it, I miss being around folks. You know. Um, you, the last time you were on this podcast was when we first started it in 2018. And you said that the decisions that we're making over this decade and the next decade are going to have consequences that will take hundreds to thousands of years to rectify. And so I'm wondering over, you know, that's a pretty stark statement. (laughs) Um, I'm wondering how your approach towards sustainability has maybe changed over the last year and a half, especially with COVID. I mean, you know, I, I know you're you were hoping and we all were that we could be focusing on things like, you know, climate resiliency and how to protect biodiversity. I know that's something so close to your heart, you know, making sure that there's a greater focus on, on agrobiodiversity. Are, are we going to lose those things because of all of this um, focus on COVID, which is much needed? This is an emergency. We need to focus on, on, you know, stopping the bleeding, so to speak. But what about the other things that we care about? Yeah, you've you've uh, you've pushed my button. <laughs> uh, so this is this is this is this is what I don't sleep uh, uh, at night about. Um, I mean, we 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 were talking about this as being the decade of action. This we were giving ourselves ten years between twenty 2020 twenty and twenty thirty to to really halt the new emissions from from. From fossil fuels, transition foods to helping sustainable, the halt land expansion to protect biodiversity, and we thought we needed those those ten years. And we you know we we often talk about this in terms of, of the Anthropocene, right? That we've entered this new geological era where where humanity has become the biggest force uh, operating on a planetary scale, and that we should prepare ourselves to see environmental impacts on a planetary scale, and that if we don't change over the next decade. Uh, that is going to take even more time to reverse that. What we're seeing with with COVID is that uh, Act 1 of the Anthropocene seems to be COVID. Uh, And again, it's the same kinds of drivers, right? This is now a planetary scale impact. We've never had anything 
that has a planetary scale impact. I mean, not even you know the, the world wars. Uh, um, so this this will absolutely mark us. What we absolutely have to avoid is having climate change and biodiversity loss uh, be acts two and three of of the Anthropocene. And so it's it's really fundamental. That, that COVID, again, as devastating as it is, we, we have to, to learn lessons for this. The big challenges of climate have not gone away. The big challenge of, uh, of biodiversity loss has not gone away. The big challenge of economic injustice or, or even the big challenge of the disproportionate cost of, of, of food on our health, those have, have not gone away. And the real risk is that by, by rushing to take care of these emergencies, so we lose the critical space that we need to think about to prepare to organize at the local scale, regional scale, global scale, to take on these these mega challenges. COVID is going to impact us massively, and it will uh, probably take us twelve to twenty four months to uh, you know, to fully get out of, of COVID's impact, if at all. If we don't redress climate change in the next decade, it's going to take us a century to resolve. And so we we just can't keep our eye off of uh, the climate challenge as we do this. And, and I hope, uh, without belittling COVID, that uh, it, it does give us room to, to recognize that when the global community needs to mobilize, it, it can mobilize uh, and it can come together to address these issues. And I'm hoping that we will for COVID as well. I'm seeing some cracks in, uh, in the wall. But, but I think that you know, this is the kind of Global mobilization is required to tackle climate change. The kind of global mobilization that's going to be required to tackle COVID, we need to be able to do those. And the biggest risk is that uh, we've now reached an era where we're going to be in perpetual firefighting mode. We just came out of the Australian fires. California was in the fires before that. Uh, we were really beginning to see, I think, the increased impact of climate change and, and recognizing that this was also becoming a major food disruptor in Mozambique and Puerto Rico in many other parts of the world. Uh, we're really at a critical juncture now where the space that we have to really think and plan is becoming smaller and smaller. Uh, and if we don't take decisive action soon and, and thoughtful action soon, uh, I'm, I'm very, very concerned that we're just going to be in perpetual emergency mode. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, it, it's something, you know, you said it keeps you up at night. It's something that, you know, makes me nervous along with everything else that's making me nervous. But you also mentioned this term thoughtful action, which is what I appreciate about you and I appreciate about EAT. You're creating that space for us all to, you know, have these discussions, whether they're online, they'll be in person again someday. But, you know, having that that opportunity to create dialogue and, and discuss the nuance of these issues, I think it is so important. So I commend you and everyone I know at EAT who's working so hard during this time and, you know, before COVID and after COVID, I know how hard you all work. You know, um, You've been a little depressing, Fabrice. I'm not going to lie. So I'm going I'm to make you inspire us now and, and tell us something hopeful that you've seen throughout this, because I think it's important for us to all understand the gravity of what's going on, but also to be inspired. And you, you inspire me. So many people I've interviewed for this live cast inspire me because it makes me feel better that really smart people are working on these issues. So who, anyone in particular is inspiring you right now? Well, I've used you as an example, so, so you're absolutely inspiring. I think you've been tremendous. Um, I think that you know, David Nabarro is absolutely inspiring. Uh, the uh, 
Elodie and Yazid from my CSA are, are there. They're the ones that inspired me the most. My, my neighbor's a, a, a paraplegic uh, three, two-year-old young man. He, he's lovely. Uh, he, his wife and his kids are, are good friends. And the CSA is dropping food off at his door, uh, dropping off the tomato plants for, for their garden, uh, recognizing that he's absolutely vulnerable and his wife is just a terrorized that uh, uh, that if you were to get it it would be fatal and so just to see that community come together to make sure that they have access to food to make sure they have access to to a smile within the safe bounds I think has been uh, uh, absolutely heart heartwarming and I think just again reinforces that that food is not an anonymous thing that gets delivered by drone or in a box on our doorstep it's it's about the people who produce it, about the people who prepare it, about the people who, who, who we share with. And, and I think that that's, that's what we really need to elevate as we go forward, is that this is a, a humanistic challenge uh, and that we're all a part of that challenge and we all have an opportunity to contribute something. And I'm absolutely convinced that we will all rise up to this occasion. I, I couldn't agree more. Fabrice, can you give us the uh, website for EAT so everyone knows how to get in touch with you and, and learn more about what EAT does? Sure, www.eatforum.org. So we'll also have that available on our website and in our social media. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Thank you so much, Fabrice. You're a wonderful person to talk to during these times, and uh, you give me a lot of hope that we'll get through this. I hope um, everyone will join me back here at 5 p.m. Eastern when I'll be Uh, talking to Amy Wu from Farms to Incubators. Stay well, Fabrice. Stay safe. Same to you, Danny. Thanks for having me on and uh, looking forward to hearing the next podcast. Thanks for all the work you're doing. Thank you. Bye. Good night, everyone. Today, I get to chat with Amy Wu, who is the founder and chief content director of From Farms to Incubators, which is a multimedia platform that uses documentary video, photography, and the written word to tell the stories of women leaders and innovators in food and ag tech. Amy is joining us uh, from Rhinebeck in the Hudson Valley in New York. Um, Amy, it's so great to see your face. (laughs) Um, Thanks for doing this. I hope everyone in your community and you are all safe and and healthy and hunkered down right now. Yes, thank you, Danny, for having me. It's great seeing you uh, again this time virtually. Um, Yes, thankfully, everybody is, uh, I'm safe and my family is safe as well during these times. Yeah. So good to hear You know, you and I have been part of um, some interesting discussions over the last year around agriculture and technology. And one of the things that I've been so inspired by during the COVID-19 pandemic is how many farmers are quickly changing their practices and incorporating um, technology into how they they are, you know, reaching clients, how they are uh, thinking about, you know, um, how to grow food, how to to get it to people quickly, how you know how they can keep themselves safe and their clientele safe. Um, I, I'm just wondering, from your perspective, do you think that you know these smaller and and um, you know medium sized farms, the farms that are you know surround the Hudson Valley, do you think they're able to better pivot than let's say how big food is responding to COVID nineteen? 
That's a really that's a really great question. Um, I mean, here in the Hudson Valley, certainly uh, many farms, majority of them, I would say, are small to mid-sized uh, farms. Many of them owned by um, family as well. Um, what I'm observing and seeing is that um, they they are able to pivot in the sense that there's a huge demand um, for fresh food during these times, especially um, with uh, produce, uh, fresh vegetables mm-hmm. and fruits. So with the smaller farms, um, if they haven't already had a CSA program, um, I've been seeing, a, you know, people, the farms are returning to CSAs and there's a huge demand for um, CSAs or for uh, purchasing them online. There are some farmers markets that are continuing, actually, obviously practicing social distancing and so forth. But the Hudson Valley um, is, is is has always been known for uh, its small farms, and now I think there's even a greater demand. And I hope that demand for the CSAs and the foods continue, and it's not just a trend um, during this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. It's one of the things that worries me, you know, whether it's six or eight or 10 or 18 months from now, you know, I don't want those small and medium sized enterprises who are, you know, so invested into creating a sustainable food system to sort of lose that customer base. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Can you tell our viewers and our listeners a little bit about uh, From Farms to Incubators and how you came up with this idea? Uh, absolutely. So from Farms to Incubators started in uh, 2016. Uh, wow, time flies. It's almost five years now. And it started, um, it's a multimedia platform that uses documentary, video, uh, still photography, um, written word, and uh, to tell the stories of women innovators, leaders in food farming and in a sector called ag tech, um, the focus being um, ag tech and also uh, the focus being especially minorities and women of color. It started when I was a uh, local reporter in Salinas Valley, California, which is known as the vegetable um, salad bowl of the world. Uh, It's like a $9 billion, $10 billion industry of leafy greens. So um, I noticed that there... um, didn't seem to be many women, especially women of color, people who look like me um, at decision-making levels. So I started to ask people, um, can you introduce me to some of the the women? Are there women who are innovators and creating the technologies for farming and for farmers? Um, and Danny, I think it does go into the conver- the earlier question that you had, um, particularly during this pandemic and crisis, because um, ag tech uh, is a area where uh, different technologies um, are being created to address the challenges that farmers have been facing for a while now. Everything from labor shortage to um, water and land shortage to the loss of air like uh, farmable soil and it comes from uh, climate change and global warming obviously play a huge role in it but um i think the with the current pandemic we're in you know there's there's uh, even greater challenges for farmers too well, and, and I think also some opportunities, right? I mean, there's the, there's a lot of ways that folks are, I think, experimenting. You mentioned, you know, how uh, some farmers markets in your area are practicing physical distancing and still reaching customers and, you know, doing sort of drive up kinds of things. There's mo- more sort of digital marketing going on, which is something that not all farmers, you know, were involved in because they're 
busy farming. So I think there are some opportunities there and opportunities maybe for collaborations. Um, you know, uh, farmers have a very different set of skills than say, you know, people who are, are marketers, right? Or, you know, good at sort of the PR. Absolutely. I mean, here in the Hudson Valley, the, the farms uh, were already starting to pivot um, way before this happened. I mean, um, this area is also known for apples, too. It's like a huge mm-hmm. region for apple orchards. And the challenge is that there's um, not, a, you know, the next generation of young people are not looking to necessarily farm. There are young people, though, interested in farming, but the land is really expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, farmers had been moving into areas. Areas even like hard, you know, cider or uh, diff- mm-hmm. other areas, um, events, um, you know, way, events to connect with customers. So um, there's all kinds of creative, cre- creative ways to that I've seen the farms try try to um, try to pivot and to stay not only alive but to thrive as well. Yeah. Yeah, and then that's a good word to use right now. How can we make sure that these farms thrive and not just survive this crisis? And obviously things like agro-tourism or events aren't going to be happening, but there are lots of other things that, that can. And so I think, you know, some of the stories that you highlight, you know, from from these innovators in California, there are a lot of lessons to be learned, I think, for what we're going through now. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the the project and the book that you're putting together? Yeah, absolutely. The The project um, that I'm putting together, we have completed a, a documentary that profiles four women, um, mostly in California, because I've, I've learned that there's a lot of the adoption of ag tech was started with the big farms out in California. So um, these women are out maybe um, dealing with the growers in Salinas Valley, and there's a connection with Silicon Valley as well. So what is, what's next? Um, next, uh, I found, um, so I was telling you, Danny, that in the beginning when I was looking for women innovators, um, especially women of color, people would look at me like, oh, why are you asking me this? Or I don't know if I know of anybody, but uh, four years later, I've not only found um, a handful of stories, I found, I've talked to dozens of women now who have shared their stories about um, creating uh, some form of technology to specifically help farmers increase their yield, be more efficient. They're not just in California, they're in the Midwest, um, they're in New York, they're global. They're, mm-hmm. they're in Asia, they're in Africa. Right. And um, a lot of them have a background in STEM and a real passion and interest in using their knowledge in making a difference in the food systems. So I'm collecting the stories uh, in the form of a book, portraits, and it's going to be very photocentric with um, a profile of them. And we're going to be uh, launching an exhibition with the uh, photographs. And we have uh, artists that are contributing. And we're going to be launching that at the National Steinbeck Center in Salinas in November. Uh, we're hoping to actually uh, also extend it to a virtual exhibition, Danny, because um the thought is this the stories and the content should not just be limited to California, but rather have a global audience. And I think there's a lot of topics, you know, within that 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 really um, that can really be discussed in a global level. 
as well. Absolutely. And what I love about the book project and, and your documentary is you're really changing the face of what ag tech looks like. You know, as you said before, it's been, you know, sort of considered male centric. Women don't often get the funding to, to take these projects uh, or lead them in, in ways that they, they could or should. Um, do you think, especially during COVID-19, we should be listening to these, you know, these female entrepreneurs and innovators more? Because I think a lot of what I've seen from, from the work that you've done is that they're coming up with, with, um, with innovations that actually solve for problems. Do you, you know what I mean? I think a lot of, of the ag tech space has been sort of, you know, let's use technology because we have it and it's not really solving for what a, a farmer actually needs or, or wants in his or her field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the ag tech space, which is actually uh, growing in the in terms of investment and also the number of um, companies and startups in the space, there are men, there are women, there are people of all different colors. Um, but I chose to focus on uh, women and especially women of um, color to introduce uh, voices that I feel like are have not been heard yet. So. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the women that I've highlighted, I'll, for example, when you mentioned problems and challenges, their technology is specifically addressing a problem or challenge. For example, there's a company um, called Trace Genomics, and they're using genomics and machine learning to test the uh, quality of soil for farmers. Um, soil is critical. I mean, that's like the skin. <laughs> I mean, it's like skin to, uh, it's important to have healthy skin for us, right? So like in order to grow healthy vegetables and, and produce, the land needs to be healthy too. So that is a soil testing kit that they developed. Um, another woman I spoke to recently, she's in the Salinas Valley. She has created a whole uh, data system that farmers can just log into on their mobile phones, on tablets, and it follows like 600, 600 different kinds of uh, commodities. And whatever commodity the farmer's interested in, they can get the prices, they can get all the information, they can get any kind of like minute to minute change that would impact, um, you know, what they are potentially growing or shipping, sure. especially not just growers, but shippers as well. So um, she's actually finding that she's getting more phone call, a lot more phone calls at, during this crisis because um, not only are the farmers of all, you know, everybody's affected. And so the, she's trying to, you know, basically cater her technology to the smaller farmers as well. Right, right. That's really interesting. You, you also mentioned that um, funding for ag tech is increasing. And, you know, we, a lot of that funding has gone towards sort of, um, you know, male dominated male owned firms, but I I'm wondering because of COVID-19, what are your thoughts on where investment is going, not just for the big firms, but the smaller firms that may be led by, you know, women of color and, and, and people who are starting out in this space. Are you sort of concerned that funding will go down and investment will go down? I mean, I, I am concerned, um, in the sense that, the sector itself uh, had always been, because it was new and um, there weren't a lot of VCs that just focused, like, say, on agriculture, ag tech. Agriculture mm-hmm. is still a sector that um, is a mystery to a lot of venture capitalists, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, for, those peop- for those of us who, who don't farm or who are not on a farm, 
there remains an image that farming is tractors and overalls. <laughs> so I think there's a whole education process, first of all, with understanding what is ag tech, um, what is agriculture today. So the funding for ag tech over the past five years had actually been going up steadily as more farmers are trying to are looking to adopt the technology. There were a lot of farmers who were actually um, even five years ago when I started to do this research, they were adverse to trying new kinds of technologies on their farm. And I'm not criticizing them. I mean, farmers are very busy. Um, I, I had a chance to work on a uh, farm and work closely with growers. And if you can get like a minute of their time, you're lucky. <laughs> so it's hard to get the te technology in their hands. But with what's happened, um, I'm concerned that the the funding is going to uh, dry up for the firm for the startups that are beginning to or that are looking to fundraise for the next round, um, or starting to fundraise currently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it concerns me too, and I'm afraid so many interesting innovations will not come to fruition because they couldn't get the backing because we're sort of, you know, we, obviously we have to deal with this emergency right now, but I think you know we also have to think long term. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that bothers me about what's happening right now, and again, we have to deal with this emergency. COVID-19 is an emergency and, and we have to, to, you know, make sure that we, we get through this. But what I'm concerned about is that we will lose sight of all of the other problems that ag tech can solve for in the food system. And, you know, you were talking about climate change earlier, you know, um, labor and, and making things, you know, um, easier for farmers or, you know, um, the, the ability of drones and, and other technologies to map soils or, you know, give weather and data information. I'm afraid those things will be lost because we're so focused, again, on this emergency. Yeah. I mean, it's just so critical. Um, for example, looking at the labor shortage, for example, in California, not just California, but really globally, um, mm -hmm. is that the field workers are aging out. I mean, a lot of them are now in their late 50s, 60s, and right. even 70s. Like yeah. Exactly. And, and um, if you look at the bottom line, it's like they're, the farmers um, are doing a great job, let's say, for example, growing the crops. So you might have an amazing year and a lot of strawberries, <laughs> but if there's right. nobody to pick the strawberries, um, you have a lot of orphan strawberries, pretty much. So where ag tech can play a role, ha has proven to play a role in that and still developing. There are robotics, for example, and automation that are being developed to pick fruits such as strawberries. Strawberries are challenging, though, because they have very thin skin. <laughs> so that's still being developed, you know, to find that uh, a robotic that can be sensitive to the touch, you know, and to pick the strawberries. Right. Um, in the same way that a human being would be able to, for example, pick them. But it's critical because, like I said, um, without humans then picking those strawberries, that food goes to waste. It doesn't end up in the shelves um, of you know markets and out there, whatever, whether it be a farmer's market or um, a supermarket. So I, I am, I'm positive about technology and innovation mm -hmm. in agriculture. And yet, at the same time, there's this fine balance that I think needs to be discussed about, well, 
yes, we can automate it. We'll eventually be able to create a whole world where everything is technologized and maybe automated. But I still feel like there needs to be this balance with where does the human being, you know, also play a role in the system as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just because we can do it doesn't always mean we should. And, you know, as you know better than me, technology is not a silver bullet for any of the problems we're facing. But, you know, in so many ways, it can be a tool that helps farmers and eaters alike, you know, grapple with some of the issues that we, we already talked about, whether it's labor shortages or preventing food waste and, and that kind of thing. You know, I, I know you, you mentioned that when you started this project, uh, there weren't many people who looked like you. And I imagine that would make one feel like an outsider when you're when you're in those spaces, how can we make sure that the, you know, the, the young women who are interested in ag tech right now feel like they have, uh, you know, a, a home that they feel like they have mentors to talk to, that they feel, um, engaged, that they don't feel sort of put off by, you know, not having, um, that maybe, and I don't mean to sound corny, but a sisterhood of, of, of women leaders before them? How can we make them feel more encouraged to be a part of this work? That's a great question, um, Danny. I mean, I, after f- four years, nearly five years of talking with different women um, in agriculture, in ag tech, um, I think there is still a long way to go, but I'm pretty, I, I, I see that there are different ways and that, that we're moving toward the right direction. Um, certainly, the there are women who have stepped up to be mentors to other women in the space. And um, they would love to share their wisdoms with, with others. It's a matter of tapping into that, a network, perhaps creating a network of women uh, leaders in ag tech. Currently, uh, I don't believe there is any trade organization or industry organization for women in ag tech, but there's, there, um, on the, on the other end, there's a lot more in- accelerators and programs and incubators mm-hmm. that are seeking uh, startups that are led by women and women of color. There are some um, angel investors and uh, venture capital firms that I've come across who um, make it a point to look out for companies that obviously have a really good technology, but also happen to be led by women. And I do want to say one thing is that it's the importance is that it's the technology works. Obviously, like the women that I'm talking to, their technology has been proven and so forth. And the bottom line is that the most important thing for growers is that it works. But then there's another layer um, where there are investors and farmers that say, I really want to, um, I really want to uh, promote, you know, more women in this space. Like I have a daughter, I have a granddaughter and I'd love Mm -hmm. to, have them see that there's an opportunity in um, in agriculture. I mean, agriculture is definitely not just tractors and overalls. It's um, it's detailed research. Um, it's right. marketing. Um, there's a lot of uh, science and technology and innovation that goes behind it. So the job titles are going to be changing or are changing already. So there's going to be a whole different skill set that's needed. Um, I heard that the, the FFA membership is, uh, the number of women is almost 50, 50. <laughs> and nice. That's great. Future farmers of America. Future farmers of America. And, uh, with ag programs, you know, like at Davis and, um, others, maybe Purdue that there's, uh, it's almost 50, 52 with maybe even more women surpassing, uh, men, you know, in the programs. 
So right. all of this is, is promising. And it, in the end of the day, I feel like um, it's great to just have youth, you know, young people who are interested right. in agriculture, because it's, it's much more than just um, what people maybe in their minds still think of agriculture. So um, I don't know, change takes time, but I see it happening. Absolutely. And so do I. And it's been really inspiring, like in the work that Food Tank does to see so many young women, uh, you know, sort of step up and, you know, take on these leadership roles and be really involved, you know, because when I was growing up and even in graduate school, there weren't as many sort of women who were studying the science of agriculture, the technology of it. So it's really, really encouraging to see, especially right now when I think we need more of these hopeful stories. Um, you know, just sort of make us all feel more positive. So to, to end on that note, Amy, I'm wondering if you can share, you know, who is really inspiring you right now? You meet so many incredible people in your work, but is there a particular person or organization that you're just, you know, feeling very hopeful about right now? Well, I am hopeful, definitely. And I'm, I am, I've met so many different kinds of uh, individuals from, you know, entrepreneurs to, um, leaders at a corporate level. Um, it's hard to name, I would say, like one person who's inspired me or who I want to particularly highlight. But I would say that um, the women that I am highlighting in the book, there's going to be 12 of them, but there's so many more. I mean, there's just so many more women. So we're hoping to collect everybody's stories eventually, not just in the form of a book, but in um, on, a web, on the website and also share their stories worldwide. Um, I would have to say that the, the traits that I am inspired by the women is that they are uh, fearless and um, they are relentless in right. their goals, meaning um, startups already have a really challenging time, any startup in any industry. Um, there are statistics showing you know, the number of startups that fall by the wayside, frankly. Yeah. But uh, what's amazed me is that every woman that I have followed from the documentary onwards is still in ag tech, is still with their That's company, right. still trying to raise money. And um, I spoke with them uh, over the past month, you know, as the pandemic started uh, and to now. And I was wondering who would answer my phone call. You know, there were, there were questions like, well, who's still working? <laughs> right, right. Um, I don't say it lightly. I mean, I was just, I was really wondering, you know, and I, all of them are busier than ever. Um, some of them have even gotten more interest because of their innovation and technology. Um, so I, I'm confident that I have a, I have a lot of hope that their companies and their startups will survive um, this, uh, this challenging time. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed uh, for, for that. And also as for ag tech as a sector, I remain, pretty positive about it, despite what's mm-hmm. happened. Because um, as we can see with this uh, crisis, um, education and medicine uh, are certainly at the at the forefront. We can see now that uh, it can be delivered through innovation and technology. Um, things still need yeah. to be worked on. But I think agriculture um, is part of that as well. Absolutely. I really, I couldn't agree more with you, actually. I think it's it's such a positive time for watching how these innovations can be part of the solution. You know, that, that technology, which is often thought of as sort of, you know, um, looked down upon or thought of as, you know, blamed for lots of stuff or thought of as a little bit evil. There's really all these amazing technologies that are taking place that can work on a small or medium scale that can help farmers of all sizes and, and do a lot of good in the world, especially right now. 
Um, Amy, if people want to find out more, uh, they can go to your website, farmstoincubators.com. Is that right? Yes, they can go to farmstoincubators.com and we are going to start rolling out um, the uh, stories toward the end of the year. The book is coming out in 2021 and um, I want to thank you, Danny, for your contribution to the, to the book as well. We are highlighting um, not just the portraits of the women, but we have... Um, uh, different women leaders in the food space that have written, that have also contributed. There are some essays to it as well. So um, really excited about it. So I'm just hoping everybody will uh, follow up with us on the website regularly and also on our um, Facebook page. Yeah. So again, farms to incubators.com. I'm honored to be a part of this project. Really honored to know you, Amy, and all of the incredible work that you do. A reminder that um, this conversation with Amy will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And please join me back here at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tomorrow when I'll be talking to Pekka Pesonen, the Secretary General of COPA, which represents European farmers. Thanks again, Amy. Please stay well. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.